when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers worship the Father in the spirit and the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning we're going to do a lot of thinking about, about worship. What we've actually been doing for the uh, the last 30 minutes or so. But before we do that, I want to recognize a couple of young people that that have come to mean a lot to me, and, and I think mean a lot to many of you in in our church family. Uh, Brady Ross and Kara Spiegel. This is their last Sunday uh, with us. Uh, their last time to be with our youth before uh, they head back to. Uh, Kara's going to be going back to Harding, and Brady's going to be going back to OCU to continue their studies. And I want our church family uh, to know how much in watching them day to day, our kids have been blessed and our church has been blessed by their work. And we want to say to Brady and to Kara that what you did this summer has not only blessed us right now, but you've blessed our church family in future leadership by the ministry you did this, this summer to these kiddos. And what we'd like to do is to have you stand... And we want to sing a song of love to you. Let's get you guys to stand. We love you with the love of the Lord. We love you with the love of the Lord. We see in you the glory of our King. And we love you with the love of the Lord. And all the church said, let's pray. Father, what a great blessing it's been this morning to be here and to sing with the saints and to be blessed by each other's voice and to be blessed by each other's heart and faith and to be drawn closer to each other as we draw closer to you and you to us. What we pray for, Father, is to to be people of worship, to be disciples who know what it means to every day to pick up our cross and, and to follow You wherever You lead us. But to do it with a song in our hearts and, and praise upon our lips in such a way, Father, that all of our actions are, are known to be in reverence of Your great and in awe of Your great salvation and presence in our life. And so as we, we think about worship and, and how to be better worshipers, the kind, Father, that You seek, We pray that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want to begin with a a story about four older, four or five, a group of older retired gentlemen that are having coffee at the local Starbucks. And one of them says to the group as they're sitting there at the table, says, you know, my arms are so tired, I just feel so weak that I can't even lift my arms up and get them on this table. And another fellow says, well, you know, my hands are so weak from, from uh, this onset of arthritis that I'm having a hard time even holding this cup of coffee. 
And the next guy says, you know what? I'm, I'm having such a hard time seeing what's ahead of me. I'm going to have to go to the optometrist and tune up my prescription so that I can see better. And the guy next to him said, what? I can't hear what any of you are saying. You guys need to talk louder while I turn up my hearing aid. And the last fellow said, well, boys, you know, we're not in real good shape, but at least we can still drive. <laughs> I don't know why I tell you that story, except that I think that the moral of that story is this. Regardless of what shape you might be in, there are just some things you never give up. Now, for disciples of Christ, this next statement up on the screen as it pertains to worship is true. A disciple never gives up on the battle to consistently and continuously worship God. Amen? Let me say that again. A disciple never gives up on the battle to consistently and to continuously worship God. Let's read again from John chapter 4, verse 23 that Bob just read to us. And let's emphasize a couple of words towards the end of that verse. Jesus is speaking. He says, you know, there's a time that's coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Say that last phrase, that underlined phrase with me. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now let's say it again with our outside voices. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What that verse tells us is that there's a kind of worshiper, a kind of human being that is given to worship in spirit and truth that God is seeking. God is looking for human beings like us. The question is, are we seeking Him in worship, in spirit, and in truth? There was a book that was written back in 2007 by Hemant Mehta, uh, entitled, I Sold My Soul on eBay. Have you seen the book? Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. Uh, as a teenager, Meta lost his faith, but he, he considers himself to be an atheist, but uh, he's always been curious about religion and why people go to church and, and, and the religious experience in America. He kind of follows in a long uh, list of, of sociologists in America. And he spent uh, a long period of time going across the United States, visiting all kinds of churches in all kinds of towns, cities, small towns, burgs, you name it, suburbs. He went and visited them, gigantic megachurches all the way down to little churches. And you would think as an atheist that he's writing this book from kind of a, a hateful, mean-spirited standpoint. It's really not. Uh, in fact, it's, it's surprisingly friendly and, and kind of open-hearted and, and friendly in the tone that he writes with. And uh, although I've not read the entire book, having skimmed through parts of it, there is this one thing that keeps coming at over and over again in his book. It was something that he discovered in all churches all over the place, regardless of size and where they were located. He wondered why people always got to worship late. The point being, in his mind, if Christians really believe that there is a God, a God who created the heavens and the earth, a God who sacrificed His only begotten Son on the cross. He was, he was cruelly killed for our sins. Then why are we not arriving early? Why do so many arrive late? It's a pretty good question, but I want to respond to that. I think that there probably are some pretty good reasons why people are late from time to time to worship. 
I mean, who has been trying to get someplace 15 minutes early and you give yourself enough time to get on 410, 281, 35, or whatever it might be, only to find that there's unpredictable construction or there's some accident that's taken place that's going to slow you down? You can't predict that, and it's a legitimate reason for why you might be late to worship. How many of us have been going out the door to church and the little kid has an accident? And it may, you know, it may be uh, you know, something kind of easy, but a lot of times when those kiddos, they have an accident, that you're changing wardrobe. It is a wardrobe malfunction, and you've got to change that dude. Or a lot of times, you know, the reason you're late coming into the assembly is because you're a greeter or you're a Bible school teacher or you're involved in some kind of ministry and you're out there and you're taking care of people and that's the reason because you're closing up shop or you're helping people get out of their car or handing them a bulletin and greeting them as, you come, as they come in that you come in late. Or it might be that you just discover somebody needs a listening ear. Well, there are a lot of reasons, I think, that are legitimate for being late to worship, but we do have to ask the question. We do have to ask the question. I mean, here's the thing. If a visitor, somebody who is legitimately seeking God and trying to figure it out and asking the questions and listening intently, over the last year, if they came over the last year and sat behind you in the pew behind you in worship, what would they see in your worship and what would that communicate about your faith in God? You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, here's a church that is, is really messed up theologically on so many different things. I mean, they're messed up in lawsuits, messed up on women, they're messed up on sex, they're messed up on the Lord's Supper, they're messed up on everything, messed up on the resurrection, and, and they are messed up on worship. And, and Paul says that there is a way, and he instructs him, he says, there is a way for you to worship God that when the unbeliever, the person who has not converted their heart to Christ yet, who has not become a child of God, comes into the assembly and sees the way that human beings who have had the Spirit come into their heart, their sins washed away, who through faith believe and have staked everything, everything in their life on the fact that there is a God that when they come in and they see those people worshiping God because they're in His presence, they will do what? They will fall down on their knees and exclaim that God is in this place. You see, that's what happens when we pray and when we partake of the Lord's Supper and we preach and we sing. We are, we're singing words to God, but at the same time, we're proclaiming that God is in this place because God is in our heart. And what is it that we've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks when we've talked about the Spirit dwelling in the church, that the church, every one of us, is a a building block, that we become part of the, the construction of God to build this place with Jesus as the cornerstone in which God is pleased to dwell by His Spirit. When we sing and we do all of that stuff with vibrancy and with a, a vitality and with a dynamic, It's not just drawing us near to God and God near to us, but it's proclaiming that God is in this place. That God is in this place. And that's why worship is important in the kingdom of God, folks. That's why worship is important. One of the reasons why it's important. But here's the thing. It's so misunderstood. Years ago, you know, as you, as you know, for, for a lot of years, uh, we've been broadcasting these one-minute spots on KDS Radio and, and ESPN. Years and years and years ago when we began, there was a, the, the initial producer of those spots was, a, was just a, a, a really great gentleman 
taught me a lot about how to do these spots and how to project the voice and speak. He was, a, he was a great guy. In fact, we called him the sensei of radio. And when we would go into recording his studio, we called it the dojo. And we, we had this great friendship. And sometimes he'd want to talk about certain things. But a lot of times, you know what he wanted to talk about? He wanted to talk about God. He wanted to talk about religion. He'd grown up, but it kind of, you know, through the years, that faith that he had grown up in, he had kind of jettisoned it. It didn't make sense anymore. And guess what one of his big questions was? It had to do with worship. And, and, and Ben and I would go into that studio and from time to time, you know, he'd ask these, these religious questions. And one time he asked the question, why does God command worship? Why does God make it a commandment that you have to talk about how great He is? Is God egotistical? Is God self-centered? Is there something lacking in God that He can only get from us and that's why He's commanding us to worship God? It's a good question. And it leads to the first truth that I want to talk about this morning when it comes to worship. That truth is God does not need our worship, but we need to worship God. God does not need our worship as if He was not sufficient in Himself, as if there was something lacking in His heart, that He had a human-shaped hole in His heart. No, it's really the other way around. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart. But God does not need our worship, but we do need to worship God. Let me give you two reasons for that. The first one is we need to worship God to become a healthy human being. We need to worship God if we are going to be a healthy human being. Worship is a formative action in human beings. Worship is, is formative in the sense that it shapes us. Do you know what worship is? And I'll talk more about it tonight. But do you know what worship is at the most base level? It is ascribing ultimate value to something. It's saying this thing is of ultimate value. And, and when you do that enough, it will begin to impact your heart. And if you do that enough and have your heart impacted by that kind of worship, guess what happens? You, get, you begin to be shaped by the thing that you're, you're worshiping. You begin to look like the thing that you're seeking with all of your strength. Now, why is that important? Over and over and over again. What does the Bible say is one of the biggest detriments to our faith and our worship of God? Is it not idols? I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, idols are bad. Idols are terrible. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, and primarily in the Old Testament, the idols are referred to as a worthless thing. And then in a couple of places in the Old Testament, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, are the references there. God says about those worthless idols that His people began to seek worthless idols and became what? Worthless. Seeking and worshiping the worthless idol turned the worshiper of those worthless things into something that was worthless in God's eyes. That's why we say worship is formative. It shapes our hearts. It is, it is something that, that, that creates uh, uh, the, the shape of our heart and our mind and our ethic. And this is why the Bible makes so much of worship. To seek God in worship is to take all of our human finite qualities that reflect the infinite holy character of God and to polish them and to enhance them and to set them in character or, or set our character in relief to everything else that is around us. It is recognizing His infinite greatness in such a way that we begin to center all of our reality in the ultimate reality, which is God. And to be shaped by that, to be shaped by His Word. 
The more we meditate on God as Creator, the more we meditate on His Word, the more we think about His love and His sacrifices, the more our lives are shaped by that. So it's not only to become a healthy human being, but also to create the right kinds of feelings for God. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, I rejoiced with those who said, Let us go to the house of the Lord. You drop down to verse 4. The psalmist says, That is where the tribes go, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to what? According to what, church? The statute, the command given to Israel. And then over in the New Testament, you have Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore... After all of these things that the Hebrew writer has been talking about, the greatness of Christ and the work of God in our lives and, and, and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to change everything in the world and primarily our hearts, he says, therefore, because of all of those facts and since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. In both of those verses, you have a couple of things. You have facts and you have feelings. And what the Bible teaches about that is that worship is really about recognizing the facts and responding to those facts rather than being driven or following our feelings. Now, think about it this way. You, you think about your marriage. You know, in, in all of the years that I've been in ministry, you know, some of the saddest counseling times have been when a spouse comes to the office they knock on the doors you got a couple of minutes where we can talk and I say yeah come on in we sit down and you kind of know what's coming because you can tell by the look in their eye that something disastrous is taking place and they say something like this you know a couple of weeks ago a month ago sometime lately I woke up and discovered that I fell out of love with my spouse just fell out of love and so we continue that conversation and one of the things that we discover is that nobody ever falls out of love, profound love, out of, out of commitment, vow-making, uh, 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 marriage, that kind of love. Nobody falls out of that. You just go to bed one night and you're in love with your spouse and you wake up the next morning and you're out of love. That just doesn't happen. You know what has happened? is that all of those facts, all of those actions, all of those things that are true that form the foundation of that marriage that created the emotions of love and that created the emotions of intimacy and, and created the affection and the infatuation and all of those, those gooey feelings that we have and we call it romantic love, all of those actions that we did that fanned that flame, we stopped doing them a long time ago. I mean, why in the world did we fall in love in the first place? I mean, it's because we started doing things with each other and, and treating each other as objects of our love and doing the nice things, saying the nice things and dwelling on the best parts of that person's individual identity on that person's the best part of their personhood and and we began to fall in love those those feelings followed those actions but then we got married and we thought well you, you know i'm i'm in the club you know we're 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 we're, we're in this thing together i guess you you know we, we you know it's never going to end and what happens you know, all of that love, you, you know, it carries you for a couple of years because of all of the good stuff you did that was an investment in that person's emotional bank in their heart. But after a while, you stop doing those things. You stop opening the door. You, you know, you stop taking your plate to the dishwasher and to the sink. You stop saying all those things that you did, whatever they might be, that fanned the flame, the, the flame of emotion and intimacy with that person. You stop doing them. And slowly but surely, you begin to crash emotionally in your affection and love for that person. 
That's what can happen sometimes in worship. The Bible really spends very little time talking about our emotions. And never does the Bible say, do it because you feel like it. What you do is you come to worship because God commands it. Commands it because we want to be healthy human beings and that's what He desires. That's why He sent His Son to die on the cross. He wants us to have the right kinds of feelings towards Him which are a reciprocation of the feelings He had for us first according to 1 John. And so we come with hearts full of the thought and the facts and the truths and the information about God and the interactions that we have had with God during the week. And we come and we express it. We express that God is holy. And we express this, as we have sung this morning, that we love God and that God is more precious to us than silver and gold and diamonds. We, we, we express that we are nothing, as Steve uh, uh, so beautifully and eloquently in, in the Lord's Supper devotional said, you know, if, if it wasn't for this, this blood and for this body, we are in an ocean and we are lost and we have nothing to cling to. And when we begin to do those things, then it begins to create the right kinds of emotions. And the consistent discipline of corporate worship will indeed create the feelings of adoration of God. Tell me, did you not feel different this morning? You come in and we're silent before God and we focus on Him and then we read the, 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 some of the most beautiful words in all of the Psalms, the nearness of God. Psalm 73, verse 28. The nearness of God is what? My good. In moments like these, I lift up my voice. I count my blessings. It's well with my soul. Regardless of what's going on, it's well with my soul. And at the end of that song, that, that singing in Scripture and meditation, did you not feel different? Because you did the facts and you did the actions that are ordained by God through His inspired Word? The consistent discipline of corporate worship will indeed create the feelings of adoration God. And if that was not true, if that was not true, then why does Satan work so hard to build obstacles and barriers to our spirit and truth worship in our world today? Satan has created this culture around us that manufactures idols and, and it's worship that keeps us from being self-destructive because of our self-centeredness. We recognize humbly that we are finite where He is infinite. That we are in the process of sanctification where He is the very issue and definition of holiness. So that's why we worship. Because we need to. We need to. And then worship truth number two, destroying the worship of God is Satan's agenda. Destroying the worship of God is Satan's agenda. Here's the question. Think globally. Why in every country that he can does Satan try to outlaw the public worship of God? In every country he can, around the world, why is there in some countries that people worship God in secret out of fear that somebody's going to take their life, that they're going to be castigated and, and thrown into prison and, and at worst case scenario they're going to lose their life? Why does He do that? 
is because Satan wants our worship. He wants to deflect worship from God and he wants to take it for himself. This is one of the temptations of Christ by Satan. Matthew chapter 4. You get to the very end, Satan cuts to the chase. He says, you know what? We're up here in this high place. You look out over this entire globe and look at all of these kingdoms in space and time. I'll give them to you. I will, I'll, I'll lay them at your feet. Nobody will be greater than you. You'll, be, you'll just be this unbelievable king if you do what? And what's the temptation? If you will what, church? If you will worship me. That's what Satan says to Christ. And that's why our heart is ground zero in the battle for worship. If you were to take sin out of your vocabulary, how would you describe it? Would it not be that the problem, and we don't have the word sin anymore, the problem is is that human beings are trying to take the place of God. That we are trying to stand in the place where only God should stand. That we are trying to take the position that belongs solely to God. It is a sin for the creature to replace the Creator. And yet, that is the idol. That is the temptation that faces every one of us in this place. You know, when you think about the angels, you know, the angels are so important in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you think about the angels, and angels are these created beings. They are the special messengers and servants of God. They obey the will of God. And as you read from Genesis all the way over to the maps, some of the things you discover is angels are involved in warfare. In fact, there's one angel that is named Michael, who every time you read about him, whether it's in Daniel or Jude or in Revelation, he seems to be involved in warfare, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then there, you know, there's this work that the angels do that's not warfare, but it's the giving of information. It's the imparting of, of messages from God. And there's an angel who is named in the Bible. His name is Gabriel, and he seems to be at the forefront of this kind of a ministry. And he's the one that, that, that talked to Daniel. He talked to Zechariah. He talked to Mary. He's always giving these messages. Uh, another thing that the angels do is, is, is to worship. This is what angels do. And there are lots of examples of, of the angels of God you know, declaring His holiness and worshiping Him. But in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, there's this, this picture of heaven that John has. And this is what he sees. He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Lots of angels, right? They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then you have this statement by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Talking about elders, he says, You know, if a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, a presbyter in the church must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Literally, that word conceited means puffed up, which means prideful. you got a big chest out there. You're sticking that chest out for everybody to see because you're somebody in your own mind that needs to be recognized. You need to be noticed. Satan could not steal the place of God, but he tries to steal worship from God. My own personal opinion is that is why there is a Satan. Is that in his pride, in his being puffed up, in his conceit, he tried to steal the worship from God. 
And he does that on a continuing basis in every culture. Think about evolution. Is that not the stealing the worship away from God as Creator? Is that not a product of evolution, among other things? Is this not at the core of humanism? To jettison God and to recognize that they're only humans and as humans they become the idol and they're the thing that, that, that is the end of all things? Is it not the very essence of what atheism is all about? And that's why worship is very much a part of the spiritual warfare the disciples are engaged on a, a, a daily basis. And it's why we are called together in corporate worship to be involved in this kind of spiritual battle. As Satan is trying to steal away the glory of God on earth, as he's trying to steal away the praise of God and the worship of God out of the hearts of men, that's why it's spiritual worship every Sunday morning and Sunday night when we come together, 800 voices as one to proclaim that God is not us, not some accident, not two molecules uh, colliding, but that God Himself is the Creator of the heavens and the earth, that He is the sustainer of all things, that He didn't leave the earth and walk away from it, but every day He sustains it and holds it together by His powerful Word, that He is the Redeemer in whom we put our hope every single day, that He's the author of the resurrection. He is the lover of our souls, the provider of every blessing every day. Church, that's why we come together and sing the songs that we sing and pray the prayers that we pray to God our Father that He will tune our hearts to His Holy Word. And in so doing, we will draw near to Him and He to us and with the right levels and degrees of humility and a rightful understanding of our identity in Christ and what it caused for us to be who we are today. Never satisfied with the level of discipleship, knowing that every day we pick up our cross and follow in Jesus' footsteps, knowing that if we claim to be in Him, we must walk as He walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. That every day that we do this, and through worship, drawing near to Him and near to us, that we are involved in a spiritual battle for the identity of God in His own creation. I don't ever want to be flippant. I don't want to be lackadaisical. I don't want to be lazy in my worship. Knowing that Satan is vying for it. Satan is vying for me to stop worshiping God and to worship a worthless idol and therefore become worthless. Satan is vying for every heart in our church family to do the same thing. To worship a worthless idol and become worthless. But the bottom line is, is why would we do that? Why would we do that when Scripture is so plain in telling us that when, when God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit were all together, they had perfect harmony and they shared that harmony with, with the created world and with human creatures. And if everything was so uh, perfect in, that, in, 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 in the, the order of, of heaven and earth, then why is it that, that Christ came to die for us. Well, when you read 
Hebrews chapter 12, one of the things that you see is that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. You know the one thing, the one thing that was not in heaven was us. It is for us that Christ came to die on the cross so that we can stop worshiping the worthless things and become worthless, but to worship rightly God and to come into relationship with Him through Christ and through that Spirit in our hearts to be sanctified and to be changed in the kinds of human beings that God always intended for us to be. Instead of being worthless, God has made us full of worth in His eyes. I love Jim's prayer. That when He looks upon us, He sees beauty. And He sees treasure. He sees a precious treasure. That's why we can't be lazy and flippant or lackadaisical. Because one is trying to make us worthless. The other one is trying to make us a beauty. And if you've never been made a beauty by God by confessing Jesus to be your Lord and repenting of a past life and past sins against the perfect will of God and participated in the death, burial, and resurrection as an act of faith in your baptism, having your sins washed away and realizing that God is putting His Spirit in your heart and that every day you are called to pick up your cross and to follow Him and to be changed into the likeness of Jesus and to be conformed to His image in every way. But you want to do so this morning. Because you know what's at stake now. And you know what it is that the evil one is trying to do to your heart and to the hearts of all of your loved ones. If you'd like to become a treasure of God this morning, a child of God, an heir, a co-heir with Christ in all things, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And they would love to receive you and to talk with you and to pray over you. But you need to make that first step and to come down this aisle this morning and confess that faith and to meet with these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth.